Tonight I want to continue our study of the biblical terminology concerning angels. And uh, if you remember from last week, we got started on a list of words describing angels from the Old Testament. We did not complete the Old Testament list, so we're going to pick up with that tonight and hopefully get into the New Testament words and finish uh, the list of New Testament words. There are fewer New Testament words than Old Testament words. Uh, so here is where we left off. We were talking about uh, the Old Testament terminology describing function. And so some of these we cover, and I'll just do a quick review, uh, beginning at the top of the list of the words related to function. The first one is the most common, the word angel, the most common word for angels in the Old and New Testaments. And it means the same in both. In fact, our English word angel comes from the Greek New Testament word angelos. And uh, it translates this word in Hebrew that means messenger. So this is the function. Uh, we might say if we had to pick a primary function, this is the primary function of angels to deliver messages of God from heaven. Another word related to function is minister, which means servant. And uh, we'll see this again in our New Testament list, but uh, the, the word ministers is used in Psalm 103 and other places as well. Uh, there's Psalm 104. I think only in those two chapters in the Old Testament is it used. And then you find this verse, in particular Psalm 104, verse 4, quoted over in Hebrews 1. So minister is another reference to angels. And then this is the one we ended on, one of the stranger terms. And it's also, it's strange because it only appears here in Daniel chapter 4. It's also strange because it's in that rare section of scripture that's written in Aramaic, not Hebrew. Uh, Daniel 4. So you have this term watcher. Watcher seems to have a connotation of wakefulness and uh, also seems to go along with the idea of a guardian. And also there seems to be discernment and some judicial function involved in it. If you put it in the context of Daniel chapter 4, where judgment is brought upon King Nebuchadnezzar through these watchers that he dreamed about in this very strange dream. Uh, Daniel 4 is strange in every way, so uh, that includes the way the angels are described. That brings us to the next word, the Old Testament word related to function, and that is host or mighty ones. We'll put these together because both of them relate to, uh, they're both using military language to describe angels. So you can think of the angels as soldiers with, with this description. They, they fight war, they fight battles for God. Uh, this comes from that passage in 1 Kings that we looked at several times last week. There's a lot of angelic language here through the, the mouth of Micaiah the prophet. And if you want to turn back over to 1 Kings 22, I'll remind you of the background here. Uh, Ahab and, and um, Jehoshaphat are about to go to war up against uh, Ramoth Gilead. And Ahab has all of his yes men. He calls them prophets, but they're false prophets. And they've all told him what he wanted to hear, which is, you will go up against Ramoth Gilead and you will be successful in battle. And Jehoshaphat, who was a righteous king, said, is there not another prophet that we could consult about this? 
And Ahab said, well, there's Micaiah, but he always says bad things against me. I don't like him because he doesn't tell me what I want to hear. And Jehoshaphat says, that's just the guy we need to listen to. Bring him in. So Micaiah comes in. He's very sarcastic. He's, he's, a, he's a very funny character, and he's very brave because he just talks ugly to the king. You know, he, the king could have him assassinated at any point, but um, Micaiah's not afraid of him. And uh, he tells him in this, in this prophecy that he will die if he goes up against Ramoth Gilead, a prophecy that came true. So he spells out Ahab's demise. But in doing that, he brings up a lot of language related to angels. And uh, so I'll start reading 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 18. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, Did I not tell you that he would not prophesy good concerning me, but evil? And Micaiah said, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. Okay, so the host of heaven. He says more and he describes angels in other ways uh, using the term spirit. But we're going to stop here to note that they're described as this army that's surrounding God in heaven on his right hand and on his left. The, the imagery there is not to depict, as we often see, good people on the right and bad people on the left, but just this huge army that's surrounding God and providing protection, not that God needs protecting. Another passage with this language is one that we've looked at several times already, Psalm 103, 20 and 21. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word. And then in the parallelism of the Hebrew poetry of Psalms, you'll see a repeated synonym uh, in the next line. Obeying the voice of the word, uh, bless the Lord all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. So angels are described as ministers as we saw before, but here also mighty ones, which is synonymous to hosts. That's why we're including these terms together. They both describe angels as very powerful military beings fighting in the armies of the Lord. You also have this phrase that occurs so many times in the Old Testament. It's very familiar to all of us. Uh, so many times that we're not going to read every case. There would just be way too many to read. The Lord of hosts. Now you've sung this and you've read this. Do you ever think about the angels when you talk about the Lord of hosts? Do you ever think about what you're singing or reading when you see that phrase? Hosts there refers to the heavenly armies. And what's interesting is you see this in connection to the Ark of the Covenant many times. Uh, many of the cases where God is referred to as the Lord of hosts, it's in the context of the Ark of the Covenant. I, gave, I give you one example here on the slide from 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, where the people sent to Shiloh, that's when the Ark was kept in the, the tabernacle, the tent, the temporary dwelling, uh, in Shiloh, not in Jerusalem, this is long before the days of David, and uh, brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, look at this next part, who is enthroned on the cherubim. Cherubim are angelic creatures, and uh, we talked a little about them, and we'll go back to them again because, you know, we're talking about all the terms of angels in the Old Testament. 
and they're coming up in, in just a minute. But isn't it interesting that after referring to him as the Lord of hosts, he says he's enthroned on the cherubim. Remember the Ark of the Covenant had this lid called the mercy seat. And at either end was a figure in gold of cherubim with wings outstretched, touching at the tip. And God was said to meet with Israel, not in the Ark of the Covenant, but over the, over the mercy seat. So when he was present with them, his presence was, was uh, symbolized by the mercy seat that rested on the Ark of the Covenant. It's not like the movie, you know, where they open the Ark and something comes out of the contents of the Ark and melts faces. That's not a biblical idea. But if you touch the Ark, it can be very dangerous to you. I don't know if it melts your face, but you would die like Uzzah did in the days of David where God was said to dwell, and he wasn't dwelling there in this passage because they had been very disobedient to him. And uh, they were using the ark inappropriately, carrying it into battle against the, the Philistines. But he was said to be enthroned uh, on the cherubim. So he's depicted as this um, God king between the, the cherub guards on either side. So very interesting military language there used not just of the, the Lord of hosts, but also of the cherubim. Here's a very interesting one, and you find it only in the speech of Elihu in the book of Job. Now, we talked about Job last week, and I told you, you always need to be careful and ask yourself, who's talking in the book of Job, and take it with a grain of salt if it's Eliphaz, Bildad, or Zophar, because Job called them miserable comforters, and you know he didn't have a whole lot, he didn't put a whole lot of stock into their words, nor should we. They said a lot of wrong things. If Job's talking, we usually pay more attention to that. What about Elihu? He's this strange young man that just comes out of nowhere, and it appears that he's been listening to these old guys talk, and he gave them plenty of time, and he said, you guys aren't making any sense. I'm going to straighten you all out. He seems very arrogant, but sometimes he seems to have unusual insight for a young man. And so we don't know quite what to make of him, but he does give us a, a new term for angels in Job 33, 23, and 24. If there be for him an angel, so we know he's talking about angels, because right after that he qualifies angels as a mediator, one of the thousand to declare to man what is right for him. And he is merciful to him and says, deliver him from going down into the pit. I've found a ransom. So he's, he's suggesting that an angel might be someone to whom Job could turn for an explanation about God. Inherent in the Hebrew word mediator is the idea of turning. So it's this idea that... Um, you could go to this mediator that's between you, you and God and he could hear you and he could turn to God and get God's explanation then turn back to you and explain God's uh, actions or his words in detail. Now the reason why this is such an interesting phrase to me, even though it occurs only one time, is because in the New Testament there, there's a lot of a discussion of angels as mediators of the Old Covenant. 
I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, but uh, I want to take a minute, even though we're doing Old Testament terms right now, to look at these passages starting with Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2. I'm going to move through them very quickly, so I hope that you have enough time to get to them, but I'm going to read through them um, very quickly here. Hebrews 2, 2. Since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. He's speaking there of the old covenant. And he says there, it was declared by angels. Now, do you ever remember anything said in the Old Testament about angels being involved in delivering the law to Moses on Mount Sinai? I don't recall that passage in the book of Exodus or any of the early books. So this is a new insight that we gain from Hebrews, and it's not just in Hebrews. Go to Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7. You remember Stephen, the evangelist, who uh, preached against the Jewish rulers in Jerusalem uh, for being so hard-hearted and stubborn, and he eventually was stoned to death. Saul of Tarsus was holding the coats of the men who were stoning him. This is the Stephen. And Stephen went through the history of Israel in, in summation. Really quickly in his sermon, he just gave a crash course in Israelite history. And it's in that speech that he says a couple of things about the mediation of angels with regard to the Old Testament. Look at verse 38, Acts 7, 38. This is the one who was in the congregation of the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai. And with our fathers, he received living oracles to give to us. Who's he talking about there? Well, he's talking about Moses on Mount Sinai, right? So Moses was the one in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel. Where did we read that in the Old Testament? Now go to the very end of the speech, right before he's stoned to death, Acts 7.53. He says to them, You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. The old covenant delivered by angels. What about Moses? Well, Paul settles that for us in Galatians. So I want you to go one more passage as we think about angels as mediators. Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. And this is a good chapter on the purpose of the old law. It's all about the the old covenant. And in chapter 3, verse 19, Paul says, Why then the law? He's been talking about how no one could keep the law and sins in the world because of the breaking of the law. So why the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, the offspring of Abraham by faith, should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, the intermediary here is not Christ, because Christ is the mediator of the new law, the new covenant. So who is the intermediary? Or one translation has mediator here in Galatians 3.19. It's Moses. But it says that it came through angels by an intermediary or mediator. So it came through the mediation of angels 
to the mediation of Moses. And finally, to the people of Israel. And one of the points Paul is making here is that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, and it's more direct. Not only is it universal, it's not just for one nation of people as the old covenant, but it's also more direct. It comes directly to us through the Son of God, whereas the old law came first through the angels, then through Moses, and then finally just to one nation. And therefore, it was temporary and not meant to be permanent like the new covenant. Very interesting here, and it's never spelled out for us the role of angels in the Old Covenant, but we get the picture that God chose to use them as agents to deliver the Old Covenant to Moses, who then took it to the people. It kind of challenges the idea that, you know, God was uh, the only one up on Mount Sinai with, with Moses. Now, what kind of confuses me is there's so many times where Moses is described as one who spoke face to face with God and you see him going to the tent of meeting and he's, he's so close to God's glory that his face glows after the conversation. He has to veil his face. So I'm not sh sure you know, exactly what was going on there, but the angels served as mediators to bring us the old covenant. Now that's not how Elihu was using mediator in, in Job 33, but I didn't feel like we could fully explore that without going to those New Testament passages that are about the Old Testament. Okay, let's go on to another term. Cherubim, seraphim. We've already spoken of this uh, and talked about these creatures when we discussed the nature of angels. And um, we're, well, actually, we were asking questions, and our question was, do angels have wings? And we said, except for the cherubim and seraphim, we don't read of angels having wings. Seraphim had six wings, cherubim, in some cases, had four. Uh, I don't know if we read of any two-winged angels, unless we just assume in some passages that the angels flying in the book of Revelation had only two wings. Whenever they're numbered, they're four or six. So here are the cherubim in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden. Uh, God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. I've always pictured two, I don't know why, because here it's just using the plural form. It could have been a whole army of cherubim. I don't know. I guess I pictured two because there are two on the mercy seat of the, the Ark of the Covenant. And then here's the passage where we read of the seraphim, the only passage we read of the seraphim, Isaiah 6, verses 2 and 3. Above him, this is a vision Isaiah saw of the, of the Lord God, above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Uh, so two wings, only two wings were used for flight. Two wings covered the face out of reverence for God. So even the seraphim dared not look directly at God. And they're singing holy, holy, holy. That'll tell you something about how serious it is to be in the presence of God. With two of them, they covered their feet. Now, feet were a euphemism. And uh, that usually symbolized modesty. So they were also very modest in the presence of God. Uh, they used the wings for coverage as well as for flight. 
And I think that's the end of the list of the Old Testament words. And so we're going to turn now to New Testament. So the Old Testament words we were looking at were all Hebrew words, except for uh, watchers, which came from Aramaic term. In the New Testament, the writers used Greek. So these are different words, even if the English words in our Bibles are the same. So I may repeat some English words that come from different Greek terminology, but I don't think that makes a huge difference as we go from one to the next. So let's see if we can get through these. I think we've got plenty of time to do this. Here's one we saw in the Old Testament. Spirits. Now the Hebrew word uh, for spirit, ruah, is very similar to the Greek word pneuma. If you remember last week we talked about ruah, the Hebrew term, could mean spirit, or do you remember the other meanings that go along with that Hebrew word? Wind or breath. Same with the New Testament Greek word pneuma. You know, if you use a pneumatic hammer, it's driven by what kind of force? Air. If you have pneumonia, you're having a problem that relates to what? Breath. Right? So... A wind, breath, air, or spirit can be uh, denoted by the word pneuma in Greek. And this is the word used here in um, Hebrews 1.14 in the plural. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Sent out to serve us. Wow, that's a really profound statement, isn't it? Uh, So spirits there means invisible, and it has to do with those who cannot be seen. So that is a very interesting idea with respect to our way that we look at angels. And it makes you see that in their essence, they're spiritual beings, not physical beings like we are. Uh, Also, I'll just note that they're said to be ministering and said to serve, which relates to that Old Testament word minister, although the word minister, uh, the noun is not used here. You have have the verb and the participle. Okay, I also wanted to bring up 1 Corinthians 15, which talks about our resurrected bodies, but it helps us maybe understand the essence of angels and their form or their nature. So in talking about the bodies we're to receive at the resurrection, the glorious bodies that are imperishable, Paul says... There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. One Old Testament term for angels is heavenly beings. In some of the Psalms, our translations unfortunately translate that heavens, but it's talking about the angels. It should be heavenly beings. They inhabit heaven. And so... Paul doesn't go so far as to connect these dots, but I think it's a safe deduction to say the angels have heavenly bodies. If not, what kind of body do they have? We know they're spirits. So we also know Jesus told the Sadducees that we will be like the angels and we won't be given in marriage in Matthew 22 and in other passages. So our resurrected bodies may be similar to angelic bodies in in the sense that they'll be heavenly bodies. Verse 44, it is sown, he's talking about our resurrection body, it is sown a natural body. 
We start out in a physical body. And like seed, our bodies die and go into the ground and start to decompose, but then bring forth life in a resurrection. It is raised a spiritual body. That which comes forth from the seed is different from the seed itself. So a seed goes in looking like one thing, the plant comes up looking different. Same with our bodies. A spiritual body, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Now this is interesting because it challenges our concept of spirit beings as ghosts. This all started back with Plato in the Greek classical age. Uh, Plato was a philosopher who envisioned the real ultimate world as being totally spiritual. And so there was no body of any kind in the spirit realm. Well, Paul says, this is after Plato, and he's, he's challenging Platonic philosophy here in Corinth, where that was a very popular thing. He's saying there is a spiritual body. And he didn't say, he's not talking about a ghost here, but he's also not talking about a physical body. What is he talking about? I'm not really sure. You know, I've heard people speculate about it, and we can do that all day long, but we can never say for certain what a spiritual body is. We know a physical body is a body that is animated by biological processes. There's a heart pumping blood, blood running through our vessels. We're converting oxygen to carbon dioxide, and all this stuff is going on that, you know, Will can teach about at UAB, and we can slice these bodies up and look at them. We can do surgery on them. We can connect parts together and do all kinds of things. That's not how a spiritual body works. Uh, it is animated spiritually, not biologically. I don't know how else to think of it. Uh, it's just not like it is now, which means it won't be subject to disease or death. Okay, let's move on. Glorious ones. This is what you see in 2 Peter 2 and the book of Jude. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but if you read 2 Peter chapter 2 and you read Jude, you'll see a lot of similarities. I feel like one of them knew the other. I don't know if Jude, you know, asked Peter, hey, can I use some of that sermon when I go back home? Or if Jude, or if Peter asked Jude, I don't know who, who came first, but... They were aware of one another because it's very similar material here. So Glorious Ones comes from both those books. Now here's 2 Peter 2, 10 and 11. Especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. He's, he's describing false teachers that are plaguing the church. Bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glory one, Glorious Ones. Whereas angels, this is verse 11, though greater in might and power greater might and power than human beings, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. Now, he's using blasphemy here in terms of slander. I think slander would be a better translation here than what the ESV says, because angels are not gods, and they cannot be blasphemed in the sense that you blaspheme God, but they can be slandered. And then he's talking about how angels won't blaspheme others. That should be slander, because he's talking about angels won't slander the false teachers. They have more respect for human beings than these particular human beings have for angels, if you could believe it. That's how audacious these people were that Peter was talking about. Glorious Ones highlights the obvious splendor of these beings. Glory is a hard term to pin down. 
When it comes to God, I think the best way uh, to describe it is his apparent praiseworthiness. When God is in his glory, you can't do anything but praise him. It's an automatic, instinctual thing to fall down on your knees and worship him. And at the end of time, when all eyes will see Jesus, every mouth will confess, every knee will bow. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. When he was on the cross, we didn't see him in his glory. We saw him in humiliation. He gave up his glory. He emptied himself, Philippians 2 says. What did he empty himself of? Not his divinity. He was still God. But he emptied himself of the obvious apparent praiseworthiness to die on the cross in humiliation. But when we see him at the end of time, he will be in his glory. He will appear on his glorious throne. Uh, when he was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, he appeared to Peter, James, and John in glory. And they were inspired by awe. Well, these angels, they don't have the same degree of glory as Jesus, but they have a greater degree of glory than we do. And it is obvious that they are, as Peter says, greater in might and power. Their glory in terms of strength is, is greater than ours. Uh, and yet, these individuals blasphemed the angels when these angels are too respectful and dignified to slander them. Jude says something similar in Jude 8. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams. I had a dream. I know that you're supposed to do this because I had this vision that told where God told me that this is the truth and not this. This is what they're doing. They defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. So same thing as 2 Peter 2. Then you have this term, holy ones. Again, we go to Jude. Jude 14 and 15. This is where he uh, quotes from the book of Enoch, a non-inspired source. But this part of it was true because the inspired man Jude quotes it as truth. So he puts his stamp of, of inspiration on that particular passage. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Do you think Jude thought these guys were ungodly? He says that several times. But he's talking about the angels in terms of the holy ones, which is a phrase that we saw in the Old Testament as well. This is a very interesting one, and... I didn't have enough room in the heading to include all these terms, but Paul had a string of words, a cluster of terms that he used of angels, especially in the book of Colossians and Ephesians. And I want us to look at these together. So go to Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. And you may have read this many times and not realize that you're reading about angels or in some cases demons, but uh, these spiritual beings. Angel worship was a bit of a problem in Colossae. And so uh, Paul is taking aim at that very subtly at first in chapter 1. Colossians 1.16 is showing the preeminence of Jesus Christ, whom he calls the firstborn of all creation. That's not firstborn in that he was created, but firstborn in that he is the preeminent one. 
He is first above all others. You know, they thought of the firstborn differently than we do. Um, Kayla, you know, we're, we're firstborn. Julie's firstborn. We don't get treated like we, we ought to. In, the, in, in Paul's day, the firstborn, just they had honor, you know, just by being firstborn. Jason, you know what I'm talking about. It's just not the same anymore. Um, anyway, sorry, Christy, I know you're the youngest. Um, where was I? Oh, Mason, sorry. I'm paying you a compliment, though. You seem younger than Mason. The only girl, okay. I've lost my train of thought. Uh, <laughs> Colossians 1.16. Let's read this. By him, by the firstborn of all creation, the preeminent one, Jesus Christ, by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth. So already he's talking angels and people, heaven, earth. Then he goes on to say visible and invisible. So remember, angels are spirits. They're invisible. So visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. What are thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities? Well, your first thought may be people in positions of authority on earth. And I think these terms could include that. They're broad enough to include that. But keep in mind, he's not just talking about earth. He's talking about heaven. He's not just talking about visible. He's talking about invisible. On top of that, in, in Paul's day, these words were in circulation to refer to angels having geographical dominion over places. Now, I don't think I'll get to that in just a moment. I want to share some thoughts with you on that. But um, that's how those terms were being used. And I'll, I'll explain them one by one in just a moment. Let's go to chapter 2. In Colossians 2, verse 15, Paul brings up two of those four terms again, saying that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This one verse is packed full of all kinds of very interesting ideas. For example, disarmed is in the middle voice, which is reflexive, which has some significance of what Jesus did to himself. So you know that he went to the cross voluntarily. Literally, disarmed means he stripped himself. He gave up his glory, as we were talking about. He was literally stripped. He allowed that to happen. He allowed himself to be crucified. But in doing that, in stripping himself, he disarmed whoever the rulers and authorities are. Now, we know he would not have put the angels to open shame because they were on his side, right? So this seems to have a reference to the demonic realm in particular, rulers and authorities. Triumphing is a word that has to do with a parade that they had in Rome where a conqueror would be given a, a triumph parade and he would be led through the city on a particular circuit as the people cheered him on and he would lead the people that he conquered behind him in, to humiliate them. So Jesus humiliated the demonic world, the evil spirits, the Satan himself by dying on the cross. Let's go over to Ephesians. You see this language again in Ephesians 1.21. 
far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Well, you might read that and just think, well, he's just talking about his authority is above all other authority. And yes, that's what that means. But these terms, again, were in circulation at the time with regard to angels. There were very familiar terms for angels and demons in Paul's day. Above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Then Ephesians 3.10 says, So that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Not on earth, but in the heavenly places. And isn't it interesting that our role is to make the gospel known through our behavior and the light we shed on this earth to the angels in heaven. Do you not see how much glory is given to the church and how weighty our responsibility is? That's just amazing that Paul would say that. So let's talk about what this means a little bit. As I said, there was this idea in Paul's day that they had some geographical dominion. Individually, I'll look at the words really quickly, starting with thrones, which is not in the Ephesian passages, but we saw it in Colossians 1.16. Thrones were the idea of belonging to the highest grade of angelic beings whose place is in the immediate presence of God. We talked about some of those passages that talked about the divine council. And uh, you'll see the 24 elders in Revelation chapter, chapter 5. Uh, maybe that's what the reference is. Rule, arcade, literally means beginning. So Meyer says that it's... He thinks that the context points to the angels who are designated according to classes of rank and of good angels, since the apostle is not here speaking of the victory of Christ over opposing powers, but of his exaltation above the existing powers in heaven. Authority and power are similar terms. Authority may have to do with having the right to act and power having to do with the ability to act or the ability to exercise uh, the ability to act and authority may have to do with the, the right to exercise that power. And then dominion, it comes from a word related to the Greek word for Lord, kurios, and it has to do with lordship. I'm rushing through this, but I'll read you a couple statements here. Here's the view that uh, this might have indicated some kind of variety of ranking in, um, in the angelic world. Uh, one scholar says, Paul understood and presumed this worldview, rulers, principalities, powers, uh, dominions, thrones, world rulers, these have something in common. They were used both in the New Testament and other Greek literature to denote geographical, geographical domain authority. At times these terms are used of humans, but several instances demonstrate that Paul had spiritual beings in mind. So in between the Testaments there was a lot of non-inspired literature that was very speculative, very creative, very fictional that had all the rankings of the angels lined up and had all these um, roles assigned to them that we don't read about in the Bible. And to do this, a lot of times they were using these terms that Paul's using, rulers, authorities, thrones, dominions. But I agree with uh, SDF Salmon, and I'll read his statement that he made in the Expositor's Greek Testament. He opposed all idea of a graduated scale of angelic or demonic powers. He says, it is true that in the non-canonical writings of the Jews, the non-inspired writings, the idea of variety of ranks among the angels appears, and that in the later rabbinical literature it took strange and elaborate forms, 
But between these and the simple statements of the New Testament, there is no real likeness. And there's nothing here to point either to an ascending scale or to a descending. We must take the terms, therefore, not as dogmatic terms, either teaching or implying any doctrine or graduated ranks, differentiated functions, or organized order in the world of angels, but as, a rhetor as rhetorical terms brought together in order to express the unique supremacy and absolute sovereignty proper to Christ, and meaning simply that whatever powers or dignities existed, and by whatever names they might be designated, Christ's dominion was above them all. I agree with that statement 100%. The reason Paul brings these terms up is not to give us angiology and classifications and ranks, but just to show us how powerful and preeminent Christ is. And that, that's, that's what the thought is limited to there. Okay, the term angel is very common. It's used like 175 times in the New Testament, and it has a reference to messengers. Uh, the messenger that came to Joseph in a dream about uh, Mary's pregnancy of course, uh, delivered this message from heaven. And in just about all the cases where you see this term used, that's the function. And then um, archangels, the last one I had on the list of New Testament terms. You see this term twice in the New Testament. First time is in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, which says that when Jesus returns, he will return. And alongside that, there will be a cry of command with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God which is kind of interesting with respect to our friends who believe in premillennialism and a secret rapture. You know, how, how does this correspond with a secret rapture? The voice of an archangel. I feel like that's something we're going to hear, that everybody will hear. And then back to Jude, who got into some strange stuff. Uh, you have Michael the archangel contending with the devil, disputing about the body of Moses. And he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So he wouldn't even blaspheme or rather slander the devil when the devil was ready to blaspheme God at any time. But instead he said, the Lord rebuke you. That's how dignified and respectful Michael the archangel, who was every bit as powerful as the devil, who might have himself been an archangel, um, but would not stoop to those depths. Well, there's the bell, so we'll get on to some things now that we have the terms in mind. My intention is to get into some specific studies of angels, talking about different things. So uh, come back next week and we'll talk about that.